Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Josh Rotman, who is an associate professor of psychology at Franklin and Marshall College, and his research focuses primarily on the intersection between cognitive development and moral psychology, and he focuses on studying the factors that lead certain entities and objects to be attributed with or stripped of moral concern. Or to put that another way that might be more familiar to philosophers or ethicists, he focuses on the concept or idea of the moral circle. So the kinds of entities that we think are deserving of moral worth or moral status, and those that are not. Those that fall within the moral circle and without the moral circle. So Josh focuses on this from a perspective of empirical psychology with some philosophical leanings or background. I'm obviously more interested in this question from a philosophical perspective and particularly and how it affects our relationship with non-human artificial beings. But Josh's research focuses on on more than just that. So I think this is a very interesting conversation. It's, I guess, slightly different from some of the previous conversations that I've had. And I do have a couple of episodes coming up that uh, feature more empirical research. So I hope uh, that you enjoy them and I hope that you enjoy this episode. So before I hand over to the conversation that I had with Josh, just a quick reminder that if you like this podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcasting service is. And also, you know, share the word, spread the interest in the show, and that'll help to grow the audience. So thank you. And without further ado, I'll hand over to the conversation that I had with Josh. So, you know, there are some people in my life that I care about and some that I don't, or at least there are people that I care relatively less about. I care a lot about my my daughter, my wife, my parents, my friends, and so on. I care less about people living in distant countries. Now, it's hard to admit this from a moral perspective, since I was raised in a tradition of believing that everyone is of equal moral worth. But when I scrutinize my own kind of daily practices, I don't think I can honestly say that I act as if everyone is of equal moral worth. Now, the idea that some people belong within a circle of moral concern and some do not is central to many moral systems. But what affects the dynamics of this moral circle? How does it contract and expand? Can it expand indefinitely? Or are there limits to how much we can care about others? That's a topic we're going to be exploring today with um, my guest, Josh Rotman. So hi, Josh. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me here. So, look, you're a psychologist studying morality. Maybe you could tell people who are listening, you know, what does that entail? And what's the kind of distinctive psychological perspective on morality? And what do you think it is that you're studying? Yeah, so I'm really interested in how people think about morality, um, how morality impacts their own lives, rather than trying to necessarily cast value judgments on what people ought to do. I'm trying to figure that out. So, so it's a much more kind of descriptive, explanatory research program um, than other people in philosophy or other disciplines who might be studying morality. But generally, I, I'm interested in, in the sorts of things that people think distinguish a good person from a bad person, um, an act that someone ought to do versus an act that people ought not to do, um, and the kinds of psychological mechanisms, uh, beliefs, emotions, things like that, that um, impact people's judgments in these kinds of domains. So, I mean, just out of interest, you know, what motivated you to pursue this topic or this area of inquiry? Uh, why the psychology of morality, for example, as opposed to something else? I I think it stems in part from growing up in a fairly conservative rural town and then going to a, a much more liberal college. Uh, for undergrad, and just having a, a lot of my beliefs challenged and really trying to introspect or figure out why it was that I had grown up being so convicted about the kinds of things that I had believed. Um, so that that was a big part of it. And also it it kind of started with being interested in religion. Um, so I also grew up fairly religious and then became an atheist in college. And so was also interested in the kinds of psychological reasons that had led me to believe in, in God. And that eventually led me to being really interested in why people believed in um, moral value of things like sanctity and purity. And then that, that kind of 
um, got me off the track of studying religion and, and fully into studying morality. Yeah, and we might come back to some of that actually later when we talk about the work on on the moral circle. Now, you mentioned there when you know, when you're studying morality, wearing your psychologist's hat, you're looking at this as kind of a descriptive and explanatory enterprise. Uh, do you ever think of your work as having any kind of moral or normative significance in its own right? I mean, here's one possibility that could arise, and people have told me this, that if you're interested in the dynamics of belief and the way in which beliefs vary across different communities and age groups, for example, that might incline you to maybe a slightly more pluralistic or relativistic view of morality. Is that something that you found yourself? Yeah, I, I have. And and so I, I do think that the only reason that this kind of work is important is because it, it can have normative implications. Um, I A lot of people have talked about a stark divide between what is and what ought to be. And I think generally it's it's really difficult to move from what is to uh, making sorts of claims that are normative. But I, I do think that information about how we form moral judgments and why we act in certain kinds of ways is really actually fairly essential for arbitrating between different kinds of ethical and meta-ethical theories. So so I think primarily um, the the way that I kind of came into this field was from the perspective of sort of debunking and um, trying to figure out whether there are certain reasons to disbelieve um, certain moral convictions based on the somewhat arbitrary or um, situated reasons that we end up forming our moral beliefs um, that we can get a better handle on by studying psychology. But I think I've moved much more in the direction of trying to figure out how, if we do have certain kinds of normative convictions, um, understanding descriptively what might push us in various kinds of directions can really help with policy or other kinds of um, potential interventions where we might want to nudge people in one direction or another. So so I think that this kind of work can potentially help us figure out what might lead people to gravitate toward certain kinds of moral stances that a lot of people, a lot of us might be on board with moving toward. Yeah, so it's kind of like a pragmatic angle to this and a policy intervention kind of angle to it. I mean, you mentioned there the notion of debunkings. I'm curious about that because this is something that got me interested in kind of meta-ethical theories and moral psychology back in the day. You know, Josh Green, I think, is famous for some of his you know evolutionary debunking kind of arguments of a certain type of moral reasoning. You mentioned that you had an interest in disgust. I mean, a lot of people think of disgust, particularly if, say, a lot of people, people from, a, I guess, a, a liberal sort of background or outlook would tend to see disgust as somehow irrelevant to morality or something that taints or disorients our moral perspective and that if we're too fixated on things like disgust, it misleads us, morally speaking. Was that the kind of perspective you would have had coming into this? And has your perspective changed? Do you think disgust is kind of a relevant moral variable or factor when it comes to moral reasoning? So I, I do think that disgust is even more than being irrelevant, antithetical to um the kinds of moral futures that at least I would like to to see. Um, so disgust really tends to strip humanity away from others. Um, it really narrows our uh, scope of moral concern in fairly dramatic ways. And it biases us um, in ways that are really difficult to um, support or argue for in any sort of rational way. Um, so I, I don't think that I've actually moved away from that kind of debunking perspective. I, I do think that there are certain ways in which um, understanding moral disgust, for example, can be really powerful in debunking certain kinds of moral beliefs, um, especially anything related to purity or sanctity. Let's talk about the, uh, about the idea of the moral circle, which I guess was one of the things that motivated me to have you as a guest. Um, you've been doing some, I think, really interesting research on this. Let's talk about that idea, that concept first, though. What what do you take the idea of a moral circle to be? Because I think that phrase has a certain resonance in some philosophical circles, but mightn't be familiar to everybody. Yeah, so there's different terminology that different people use. Um, some people talk about moral communities or circles of moral regard. Um, 
this idea of a moral circle was um, popularized most by Peter Singer, um, although the, the concept was there before him. But there's this idea that um, around each of us, we kind of um, carve out this circle um, within which there are entities that we think deserve moral rights and that we have moral obligations to protect or provide for. Um, and then outside of that moral circle, there exist entities or objects that we um, don't believe have moral rights or that we owe very few or no um, obligations toward. Um, and there's this notion that there are these kind of concentric rings uh, within this moral circle um, that kind of expand outward from ourselves. So we first and foremost care about um, others that are most like us uh, or that are most relationally connected to us. Um, so our friends, our family members, um, spouses. Um, and then we start moving outward from there. So um, the next concentric rung might be uh, people in our neighborhood or our in-group members. Um, and then we, we keep moving outward um, and get to entities and objects that are more and more dissimilar or more and more distant from ourselves. Um, and then at one point, uh, each of us kind of draws a line at one of those rungs and says, okay, everything between me and this line um, includes the, the kinds of things that I morally care about. And then beyond that, I, I have um, really no moral regard for anything beyond that boundary. Yeah, and that way you described it is interesting to me because it kind of suggests that people reach a certain stopping point that their circle expands to a, to a degree, but then it it becomes fixed. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that idea in a moment because I did want to talk about how the concept or idea of the moral circle develops in children and young adults. I mean, my intuition or you know, a very kind of superficial reading of child psychology is that Children probably start out being really selfish. You know, I see this myself, I guess, in my own, my daughter who's two. You know, the center of the universe is themselves. They don't, they don't really think about others. They, I mean, there's this idea that they can't really understand the notion that other people have minds or thoughts of their own or that are equivalent. So is, is it that uh, we start off being very selfish and then over time we just gradually expand outwards? So that, that is a fairly common idea. Um, it's, it's hard to come up with the right kinds of measures that really gets at what your two-year-old might think or what my one-year-old might think. Um, and I, I think certainly I, I resonate with that, that uh, my daughter also is, is very concerned with, with herself as, as she needs to be at this stage in her life. But she also is incredibly generous sometimes, is, is always trying to give things to her dog and, and things like that. So I think she does still have some notion of um, needing to to have responsibilities toward others or, or that it's good to, to give certain kinds of resources to others. But her concept of the world is currently very narrow. So it's it's hard to really expand too much beyond um, what, what she's known. Um, there has been some really interesting research done by um, Carrie Neldner and um, Charlie Crimston and others showing that in at least elementary school, um, there is not the kind of expansion of moral concern that one might expect, typically. Um, so even though uh, when people talk about um, changes in the moral circle, they almost always talk about expansion, um, what Neldner and colleagues found is actually that there tends to be more of a sort of restructuring. So if you look at kind of the absolute amount of concern that kids have between, um, I think, ages maybe five and 10. I can't remember exactly what ages they used, but um, somewhere from early elementary school to late elementary school, there's uh, there are certain kinds of changes where um, young kids start to care increasingly more about vulnerable members of society, so people who are disabled in various ways, um, and also start caring more about um, aspects of the natural environment like trees. But then at the same time, they start caring relatively less about other kinds of things. So they, they start caring less, for example, about um, certain animals. Um, also potentially of interest to you, it seems like there's um, a decrease in concern for robots um, across elementary school. So younger kids actually care more about these kinds of things. And then their circles of moral regard, rather than expanding in a kind of straightforward, linear way, um, actually seem to sort of restructure and they reallocate uh, what they show concern for. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And is there any kind of understanding of what might be going on there? Is it that, you know, here's one view of it, that your children develop this concept of maybe empathy and mind reading for others, and then they overextend that or something? You know, they, they view robots as having minds or something like that. And then over time, they learn that maybe that's not correct. And so they contract back again. Or are there just much more complex factors at play here? I think a lot more research needs to be done to to really figure that out. But I, I do think that your hypothesis is is probably right. Um, there there's a tremendous amount of restructuring that occurs in children's folk biological concepts. Um, so so the kinds of ways that they think about biological categories across development. Um, and and I think robots being animate um, that that's a really strong cue of. Um, life and of psychological capacity for really young children. Um, so I, I think it is likely that children kind of falsely attribute um, the appearance of intentionality in robots to actual intentions uh, or actual kinds of mental states. And, and that probably leads them to ascribe more moral concern to these artificial beings than um, older kids who have a more sophisticated appreciation of minds might have. Although, I mean, presumably this is also heavily influenced then by the culture and the educational environment in which they're growing up, whether they're corrected in this over-abscription of mind reading. I mean, you know, you mentioned you came at a lot of this from the psychology of religion or an interest in religion. It's been a long time since I read anything on that, but, you know, some of the work in the early 2000s, like Pascal Boyer and things talking about people with hyperactive agency detection as this being the root of kind of animistic religions. You know, if you're growing up in that kind of culture of animism, where you ascribe minds to a lot of the natural world, as a child, you're not going to be corrected in that belief. So that might, you might stabilize at a much more expanded concept of mentality, let's say, that it's ascribed to other parts of the world. Whereas in modern industrialized societies that gets corrected earlier on. Would that be a, a fair estimate of what's going on? I think definitely. And there's an interplay that, that happens between the, the actual capacities of the entities or objects themselves that we're trying to figure out whether to ascribe moral rights and uh, moral obligations toward. And then the kinds of cultural information we're getting, uh, not only about the, the capacities that we should be ascribing to these kinds of things that are maybe independent of what we might figure out um, in our own one-on-one -on -one interactions with them, um, but also just the, the way that social structures are set up across cultures and um, the, the kinds of things that are very clearly prized and um, not um, intervened upon, things like that, I, I think, also serve as really powerful cues of what ought to have moral rights or moral standing. Um, so, so yeah, certainly, um, I, I think as robots become more complex, um, this kind of developmental pattern will likely change. And then also, if you look across different societies with different viewpoints on robots or on various other kinds of entities, you'll also see um, a, quite a lot of variability. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the factors that seem to impact or affect how uh, this moral circle expands or or contracts, as the case may be. Uh, we've kind of mentioned a couple of them already. Maybe mind reading seems to be the most obvious uh, kind of capacity that's relevant to the expansion of the moral circle. The the ability to recognize a similar mentality in another entity to yourself, or not even that it's the exact same, but there's some degree of similarity. Are there other things that are relevant relevant psychological capacities to the expansion of the moral circle? So there certainly are other factors. Um, some people have noticed that um, beauty, aesthetic appreciation of other kinds of animals or uh, landscapes or beings increases our moral regard to them. So just by, by seeing something as attractive, that leads us to ascribe more moral concern to it. Um, other factors like uniqueness also matter. So some people um, have noticed that we care quite a lot about endangered species or especially species that are going extinct, um, but relatively less for species that might be matched in terms of mental capacities, but that are much more widespread. Um, so, so there are quite a lot of different kinds of attributions that go into um, making a decision about 
whether something is deserving of moral concern. Um, and also, are, there are certain things that don't have to do with the entities themselves, but just our relationships with the entities, um, how close we are, things like that. Um, but one kind of caveat or, or um, nuance to point out is the, the kinds of factors that might lead us to ascribe more moral weight to a particular kind of entity might be different than the kinds of factors that actually lead us to expand our circle of moral regard full stop. Um, so I think empathy is a really good example here, where if we start feeling a lot of empathy toward, uh, for example, a bunny rabbit or something like that, um, then that's going to cause rabbits to be um, more included in our circles of moral concern. We'll ascribe them with more moral rights. We'll feel more responsible for their well-being. But at the same time, um, people have pointed out, um, this is especially um, the case by um, psychologist Paul Bloom and philosopher Jesse Prince, but others have also noticed that empathy actually might not do a whole lot in expanding our circles of moral concern overall, because empathy is really limited in scope. Um, it acts in some ways like a spotlight where it really focuses our energy and concern on a small number of things, typically things that are identifiable and close to us. Um, so empathy tends to be directed toward things that we already probably care quite a lot about. And the more that empathy really directs our moral decisions, um, that might actually narrow in some ways our circles of moral regard because we can't feel empathy for that many things at once. Um, and because empathy is biased, it's parochial, um, if we are people who are really, really highly empathetic, that might actually lead us to care less about, uh, for example, certain outgroup members, because um, if we feel a lot of empathy toward our in-group, um, then that's going to cause us to, to really funnel a lot of moral concern toward um, in-group members, people who are close to us, and actually lose sight of the moral worth of people outside of that boundary. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of related to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, there are many famous or infamous, I should say, historical episodes where the circle of concern seems to contract in a particularly harmful way. You know, I'm thinking of episodes like the, you know, the Rwandan genocide or the Holocaust, where there's a tremendous dehumanization and othering of a certain group of people. They removed or excluded from the the typical kind of moral rights or moral standing that members of the circle would have. Like, what tends to cause that? Do we have a, any sense of the mechanics or dynamics of that kind of contraction and expansion over time? Like, what leads to these episodes of, you know, again, egregious kind of dehumanization and exclusion? Yeah, so dehumanization does seem to be potentially a central factor in um, failing to attribute moral regard to others. So so failing to see others as persons uh, will lead us to stop ascribing moral concern to these others. Um, although this idea has become more controversial recently, um, Harriet Over and others have pointed out that potentially dehumanization is not as strong of a factor as many people have believed. Um, but I, I think in these really extreme cases of, of genocide and other things like that, the structural, political kinds of explanations probably hold a lot more weight, at least in um, the yeah, in explaining why whole groups of entities are subjected to such extreme brutality and violence. Uh, so I, I think there's a big difference in just failing to ascribe moral concern to an entity or a group of entities and committing um, acts of violence against them. Um, so I, I think dehumanization is is probably not enough to um, lead to genocide itself or to lead to that kind of active hatred and violence. Um, there are other sorts of explanations needed there. And potentially, it's a, a first step to stop ascribing moral regard to these kinds of beings but um, or these, these other people from other groups. Um, but I think the the kinds of uh, rhetoric around conflict and needing to sort of protect ourselves against a threat um, is, is much more salient than our concept of who does or does not belong um, in these kinds of situations. 
Yeah, I think you're you know, probably right in the sense that the structural, political, and I guess economic factors would play a significant role here. And in that sense, I probably lean towards a, a Marxist view of history to some extent there. But I imagine that the psychological capacities can be hijacked by those political and ideological agendas a lot. And I mean, this notion of dehumanization is interesting to me. I guess Paul Bloom has written a bit about this, and I think um, Kate Mann has as well, that sometimes it's not so much that you dehumanize the outgroup or the other. You actually do think of them as being human and capable of suffering. And there's the desire to humiliate them or to commit or cause harm to them in part depends on the belief that they have the capacity to experience and understand things in the same way as you do, right? It's kind of interesting right. dynamic there. Yeah, it really is. So so I do fully agree that these kinds of political, economic, um, structural sorts of issues do need to hijack our psychology um, in order to be effective. Um, but, but yeah, I think you're pointing to something really, really critical here that um, we can kind of strip people of moral concern, push them outside the circle of uh, moral regard by dehumanizing them, um, by failing to treat them as as persons who have um, certain kinds of sensitivities and um, rational capacities. And we can also push people outside of that circle of moral concern by attributing some sort of um, evil desires or other things that kind of hinge upon having a complex mind. Um, and so just by, by understanding whether something is included or excluded from our moral circles um, can't by itself explain these acts of violence. But, but I think I, I am persuaded by, by Bloom and Mann that in many cases, perhaps not all, um, there is this need to, to view others as um, evil or as um, threatening, as um, having certain kinds of um, strategic um, devious plans to, to attack us, to hurt us. Um, and so it's it's potentially cases where we actually really do view people as human, but view them as a direct threat to ourselves or our families or our friends or our communities where we're likely to um, act most horribly toward them. Yeah, because I mean, in one sense, you might say, if you think an entity has no mind or is not like you in any way. It's not a threat. It's not an issue. It's not something to worry about that might cause you to treat them in ways that are immoral, but you don't necessarily perceive them as an enemy that needs to be wiped out or stamped out. So you have to kind of almost describe an evil mind to kind of push towards that extreme, it seems, in a way. Or yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's a plausible kind of interpretation of what's going on. I, did, I just want to briefly return to a question that we, or an idea that we we hit upon earlier on, and I think there probably isn't a straightforward answer to this, but I just wanted to get your opinion on it, which is that is there a stabilization point for people when it comes to their circle of concern? Is there is it in kind of young adulthood that this tends to stabilize, or is it just something that it's always open to kind of expansion and contraction? I think there probably is an openness to expansion and contraction um, as people's life situations change. Um, I think we tend to get into more kind of predictable life patterns as we get into adulthood. Um, and so we're potentially less likely to encounter situations that are going to really radically disrupt our circles of moral concern. But I, yeah, I certainly don't think that there's any kind of critical period um, or developmental um, point at which things start closing off or solidifying. Uh, at least I don't know of any evidence that would suggest that. Okay, I wanted to talk about a study that you did recently and kind of reported in a paper entitled uh, Tree Huggers versus Human Lovers. That's the main title. I can't remember the subtitle of, of the paper. You can uh, remind me there. But it, um, maybe you could talk a bit about like what the motivation for that study was. Like, What's the hypothesis that you were trying to investigate there? Yeah, so uh, the subtitle was that anthropomorphism and dehumanization both predict valuing nature over outgroups. Um, so what we were really trying to do in this study was to figure out the extent to which uh, there are some people who don't really fit into this schematic of um, 
the moral circle that I described earlier um, in the most straightforward kind of way that they have really different sorts of patterns of valuation. Um, so I said before that typically uh, when people kind of draw a line around the entities that they um, are morally concerned about, uh, there's this idea of a kind of linear progression outward from the self, uh, where every concentric ring is something that's um, increasingly dissimilar. Um, and so what that would suggest is that for people to value non-human animals or to value ecosystems, um, anything that's that extremely dissimilar from ourselves, we would first potentially have to value all of humanity uh, before getting to that point. But at least anecdotally, um, there are plenty of people who I've encountered in my life who seem to have a different kind of pattern of valuation. So people specifically who value animals and nature quite a lot um, and seem to do so in a way that, that doesn't necessitate valuing all of humanity. Um, so there are some people who I term tree huggers in this paper um, who at least seem to put a lot of moral weight on um, on things that are pretty dissimilar from themselves. Um, and, and so that in some ways kind of violates this idea of the expanding moral circle. So, so this was kind of the, one of the primary motivations of doing the study is just to see, uh, do these people exist? Are my intuitions about uh, these individuals correct? But also uh, by challenging this, uh, that also gives rise to um, looking into a few other questions. Uh, so first, there's this idea that we've uh, talked about where attributing mind to others uh, leads them to be included in the circle of moral regard and not attributing mind to others um, leads them to be excluded. Um, and so there are these processes called anthropomorphism, which is kind of seeing others uh, that are non-human as more human-like. So uh, perceiving animals to have human-like minds for example, um, and then dehumanization, which is uh, taking humans and sort of stripping personhood or stripping mental capacities away from them. And these processes of anthropomorphism and dehumanization have always been, been seen, at least in the literature, often described as being opposite ends of a continuum. Um, so this would suggest that people who are really high in anthropomorphism would be really low in dehumanization and vice versa. But at least in thinking about the possibility of this group of tree huggers, of this um, group of people who value nature over outgroups, it seems like relative to other people who, who might value um, outgroups over nature, these tree huggers would be expected to be high in anthropomorphism. So they would be expected to um, attribute a lot of mind to non-human animals and potentially to nature. Um, but then they would also be expected to potentially dehumanize um, to a greater degree, to actually perceive less mind, relatively less mind, um, compared to other people who don't have that same pattern of valuation um, of mental states in outgroup members. So, so this also kind of gave rise to this possibility to challenge this idea that anthropomorphism and dehumanization are always at opposite ends of a continuum, that it's possible at least for certain people to be high in, in both traits. So for people who value nature over outgroups, they might be relatively high both in anthropomorphism and in dehumanization. Um, and then a, a third point of interest for this study um, that, that really drove us to conduct this research is this idea that uh, moral concern might be perceived as zero sum. Um, and we can get into more of the reasons why I think that people might think uh, possibly incorrectly that their capacity for moral concern is a zero-sum resource. Um, but at least kind of according to this traditional picture of the expanding moral circle, one would think that people who value animals and nature really highly would have very expansive circles of moral concern, um, that they would have relatively greater moral concern than people who care relatively more about outgroups. Um, just because um, on this picture of the expanding moral circle, it seems like um, it takes quite a lot of um, moral capacity to start caring about things that are so dissimilar. But um, it's also possible that if that schematic of the moral circle doesn't fully describe how people actually attribute moral concern, that there might be this kind of reallocation just in the same way as um, 
what we saw in that developmental study that I described a bit ago by Carrie Neldner and um, Charlie Grimston and colleagues, where possibly um, people who are tree huggers might have similar amounts of moral concern as people who are human lovers, people who value outgroups more than nature. Um, so there's, rather than a kind of straightforward expansion of the circle of moral concern, there's actually a restructuring of moral concern. Yeah, maybe we could just sorry clarify the concepts of a tree hugger and human lover for the purposes of this this paper. So a tree hugger is somebody with a high degree of moral concern for the non-human world, right? Is it is it ecosystems, natural environment, but also animals? And a human lover right. is somebody who cares a lot for people that aren't like them, humans that aren't like them. Is that right? Yeah. So. Thank you for asking me to clarify. Um, and, and that's right. The the way that we operationalize this in the paper is that we, we were looking at um, two types of groups that are typically kind of at the margins of moral concern. So groups that are really close to these um, boundaries of people's moral circles, where um, people who are outgroup members, meaning people who are kind of stigmatized generally in society or people who are marginalized in society, are often attributed with less moral standing. Um, relatively less to um, in-group members, for example. Um, and then animals, non-human animals and ecosystems are also kind of at the margins of moral concern where they're also um, attributed far fewer moral rights. Um, and so what we were interested in here is um, just taking the, the relative degree that people express moral concern for these marginalized, stigmatized people and animals and ecosystems. So um, yeah, nature construed fairly broadly here. Um, and we just took different scores where uh, people who cared relatively more about nature compared to outgroups were classified as tree huggers, and then people who cared relatively more about outgroup members compared to nature were classified as human lovers. Yeah, and so and the thing that you're kind of looking at is what seems to be kind of a, a strange inversion or, or yeah reversal of moral concern in these two different groups of people. So as you say, like the the kind of rationalistic philosophical perspective of this would be something like, well, yeah, we expand outward linearly from family to friends to tribe to state to all of humanity to all of nature then. But actually, there's a certain group of people you're looking at that might not have that linear expansion. There's a kind of a reversal in the last two marginal groups. They don't necessarily go to the marginal humans first, they go to the natural environment and the other people kind of don't discount the natural environment and go towards the marginal human, right? Right, yeah. So why? how did the study work? What did you actually do to investigate these um, kind of hypotheses? So what we did is we adapted a scale that was created by uh, my collaborator, Charlie Crimston, called the Moral Expansiveness Scale, where she asks participants to take a range of entities, um, and these are entities ranging from friends and family to in-group members to out-group members to animals to nature, um, and ask people to classify them or categorize them into one of four um, circles of moral regard. So people could drag these entities into the inner circle of moral concern, meaning that they have the most possible moral rights that you could imagine, um, that we owe quite a lot of moral responsibility to these kinds of entities or they could drag them into the outer circle of moral concern, where these entities still definitely deserve moral rights and we, we owe them moral responsibility, but the intensity is considerably lessened compared to the inner circle of moral concern. Or they could drag them into the fringes of moral concern, where these entities um, deserve some minimal amount of moral rights um, and we, we owe them a bit of moral obligation, but it, here it's um, really, really reduced or they could be dragged to being entirely outside the moral boundary. So we really owe no regard to them at all. Um, so we, we adapted this by giving participants um, 10 outgroup members and 10 um, nature entities, so um, five animals and five ecosystems. Um, and then we also had three close others that we expected would be dragged into the inner circle of moral concern. So um, a family member, a partner, and a close friend. And then three um, sort, of, sort of silicone based um, artificial intelligence kinds of things. So there was a supercomputer, a self-driving car, 
and um, I think, yeah, some sort of artificial intelligence uh, that we expected would be um, not regarded a, a whole lot of moral concern. So these these six entities were just to kind of anchor people to the center and outsides um, of these moral circles. And then we were really interested in where people place those other 20 entities. So the 10 outgroup members and the 10 nature uh, entities. And so we, we asked people to um, drag the entities into these different circles and then just took different scores to see um, whether certain people would have the animals and nature generally closer to their inner circle of moral concern compared to the outgroup members or vice versa. Um, so that, that was kind of the primary way that we categorized people as human lovers or tree huggers. Um, we also had a couple of other ways of doing this um, just for generalizability, and these all led to similar kinds of results. Sorry, I'll yeah, just sorry. interrupt very briefly just for people who are listening that like the, the way you're describing it about you know, dragging people into the circle of concern or not along, at different points along a scale um, I will kind of I'll put a link to the paper that are, uh, describes this scale originally and there's like images within it where people can see what that actually entails because it, it maybe it sounds a little bit abstract there but it's it's literally like you know you're putting images of different entities on a, I presume it's on a computer screen that you're dragging and dropping them onto different points on a scale is that right yeah it is so this study was conducted entirely online um, and we actually gave people just verbal, descriptions rather than images of these things. Um, but we we listed um, all of the, the 26 entities and then yeah gave them the schematic where their self was at the center of these circles, um, of these four different rungs. And then we explained what the inner circle was, the outer circle kind of went beyond that, the fringes went beyond that, and then outside of the moral boundary was beyond those three circles. Um, and then yeah, participants literally uh, just dragged with their mouse, um, each of those um, verbal descriptions of the entities uh, from the long list that we had on the left side of the screen into one of those four circles on the right side of the screen. Yeah, okay, so that was for the categorization purposes. Uh, so what did you do then? Um, and then we also um, asked people to complete measures of mind attribution uh, to see the extent to which this correlated with anthropomorphism and dehumanization. Um, and so then what we did was, um, like I said, we got those different scores to see how many people ended up getting categorized as tree huggers versus human lovers. Overall, about a third of our sample ended up being categorized as tree huggers. So it does seem like there's a fairly substantial number of people who do value nature over outgroups. Uh, also, as predicted, these tree huggers were relatively higher than human lovers in both anthropomorphism and dehumanization. So they tended to attribute more mind uh, or more capacity for mental states to animals and relatively less capacity for mental states to outgroup members compared to the human lovers. Um, and then with regard to that third hypothesis or the third aim of the study, uh, we found that human lovers and tree huggers, when we just looked at the aggregate amounts of moral concern, so just counted up um, how much moral worth people thought all of these 26 entities had, um, people thought that generally, um, there, there was a, a very, very similar overall amount between human lovers and tree huggers. So, so there does seem to be this kind of reallocation uh, where tree huggers were not more expansive than human lovers or vice versa. Um, when you just count up in aggregate um, how much moral concern these people have, it looks really, really similar. Um, so that suggests also that when you're looking at just kind of aggregate pictures of moral expansiveness, you might be missing out on some of these more granular patterns of how people are attributing relative moral worth to different kinds of entities. Yeah, I mean, I've, so I have a lot of questions about this study. I don't know what is the best order in which to approach them. But maybe I'll just approach with, I guess, my main reaction to it, which is that it, so it, like one interpretation of this is that there's a certain group of people, at least out there, that seem to have this a limited sum of moral concern, and they allocate it in a particular way. They some people allocate it towards kind of marginal human groups or outgroups, and then others allocate it to the non-human environment. And there's this trade-off, a kind of zero-sum type trade-off between that. You you either go for one or you go for the other. And I guess I want to think that that's not true, 
mainly for moral reasons that that there's this idea i guess like from peter singer which you mentioned earlier on about the expanding circle that you know this is the nature of human moral progress is that we expand the circle outwards sort of indefinitely almost that we just we care about more and more things we used to start off you know very parochial and tribal if you look historically we've expanded now post 1945 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this notion of universalism, all humans are included within the circle of moral concern. And it seems regressive or antithetical to that notion of progress that we have this inversion among some people or this limited sum of moral concern. So I kind of view this study almost pessimistically as counterweight to that universalistic optimism that you find in something like Peter Singer's work, what do you make of it? Is that the way you see it too, or am I over-interpreting it? So I, I think this is a really important worry that you have. Um, and I, I think you're entirely right that across history, across time, there's great evidence to suggest that our moral circles have expanded considerably. Um, and so I, I think you're right to push back on this idea that we truly have this limited capacity for moral concern that's totally zero-sum, um, and that we we have a fixed amount of moral concern that we um, allocate and that we we can't expand further. Um, I I think that these dimensions are somewhat orthogonal. Uh, so there's a dimension along which we can be moral misers or we can be um, kind of extreme altruists. So we can potentially there are some people who care very very little for others who have very little moral regard for anyone but themselves. Um, or their close family. Um, and there are other people who go to extreme lengths to um, care for the welfare of distant others um, and have done some really heroic things. So so there's a huge spread just in the population, uh, in any population that we might look at, of how expansive people are. And I think that people probably to some extent within their lifetimes can um, move along this dimension as well. But my hunch is that people perceive themselves, regardless of their actual capacity, um, to have sort of a, a limited amount of moral energy, a limited amount of moral concern. Um, and certainly this, this is going to be true in certain kinds of trade-offs or dilemmas where um, you have to kind of value one thing over another. There, there's no room for um, giving $10 to um, everything. If you have to just you have $10 to distribute, you might have to distribute that in a zero-sum fashion, or if things are in direct conflict with one another, you might have to choose one entity over another. Um, but I, I think in many cases, there's not going to be that actual situational imposition or that the actual necessity to allocate things in zero-sum. But I, I do think that people have this kind of concept that they have a fixed amount of moral capacity uh, that they have to deal with. And so then there's this um, orthogonal moral dim or dimension um, along which people can can go, which might range, uh, at least in the context of this paper, from caring um, an extreme amount about outgroups on the one hand and very little about nature, to on the other hand, caring an extreme amount about nature and very little about outgroups. Um, and so at kind of any level of moral concern, any level of moral expansiveness, um, a person can kind of move along this other dimension of um, caring relatively more for outgroups or caring relatively more for animals. Um, and so what I see this paper is investigating is just how people move along this kind of orthogonal dimension, regardless of how morally expansive they are overall. So in both the groups of human lovers and tree huggers, you see that there are some people who put most things in the fringes of moral concern or outside the moral boundary, like really don't care for a whole lot. And then other people who put quite a lot inside their inner circle of moral concern and almost nothing in the fringes or outside the moral boundary. So there's a lot of variation within these groups. Um, but but yeah, that, that variation doesn't necessarily translate into the kinds of entities that people care most about. Um, and I can say more about this now if you'd like, or um, I'm happy to for you to follow up on any of that. Yeah, maybe... Follow up might be too strong. Maybe just like comments on it. So yeah, I, like I, this is an interesting idea to me that you're saying they're ortho orthogonal, and like one one way that I had of thinking about that in my own mind was kind of the comments that I had in the introduction was the distinction between 
I guess, like, you know, what I believe, if you asked me, you know, who has moral worth or who has moral standing, I think I would report that it's very, I have a very expansive moral circle. I think everything has, well, not everything, but, you know, a lot of things, including the natural environment, has a certain amount of, of moral standing. But in terms of what I do as a practical matter, how I allocate moral concern in the course of my life, I'm probably much more restrained and limited in what I can do. I mean, all human beings are limited, right, in terms of their resources, their time and their attention. And so we kind of have to make some trade-offs. And in, to some extent, if you have a very expansive moral circle, you have to make more trade-offs, right? Because, again, there's only a limited human lifespan, the human amount of human attention. So somebody who's a real moral miser, who's a very narrow circle, might be able to get to everyone within their circle in the course of their lifetime. But somebody who's a much more expansive circle probably can't do that. And so they might be need to make more of these practical trade-offs as they you know, proceed through life. So there's this distinction between what we say we believe in terms of who belongs and who does not and what we actually do. I mean, another way of putting this, although this might be a negative or pejorative way of putting it, is that a lot of talk about expansive circles is cheap talk and that we can say that everything matters, but as a matter of practice, we can't act as if everything matters. So there's some really interesting work comparing how liberals and conservatives um, allocate their moral resources um, that, that can speak to this. So some recent work has has looked at the charitable donations across the political spectrum that people have made and has found that um, in exactly the way that you described, there are some people who are more parochial, um, who donate a, an extreme amount to causes that are close to them. Um, and then others who are more potentially cosmopolitan, who attribute more to um, a greater number of different sources. Um, but in that case, there's a need to spread things out a little bit more. Um, and, and so what, what these people have found is that conservatives donate a lot to only a few organizations, whereas liberals donate a little to a large number of organizations. Um, but what's really interesting here is that when you look at the aggregate amount of um, charitable donation, liberals and conservatives are actually fairly similar. Um, so it's not that liberals donate more in an absolute sense, they're just spreading out the wealth more. Um, and I think in this case, you might argue that, that yeah, there, there is a limit in terms of the money that you actually have to donate to charitable causes. I, I think that things might be less zero-sum than, than they seem on their face, that um, people are typically not donating a huge proportion of their earnings to charities. Um, and, and I think almost all of us could do quite a lot more in donating money and, and being more charitable in these kinds of ways. Uh, and so there are a lot of choices that people make that um, could really allow them to donate quite a lot more um, across the political spectrum. Um, so this might not be entirely zero-sum. But something else that, that's really interesting is that there's another study that parallels this um, charitable donation study by Farmer and colleagues. Um, this other study was done by Adam Waits and Jesse Graham and others, um, and has looked at kind of in these very abstract ways, um, asking liberals and conservatives to allocate different kinds of moral units to um, various kinds of entities across the different rungs of the moral circle. Um, and they also find that liberals and conservatives donate the same number of units. This is true either when they set the study up as uh, people having a finite number of units or an infinite number of units. Um, liberals and conservatives end up allocating very similar amounts of units, uh, but conservatives allocate them much more to the center of um, the moral circle, things that are much more similar to themselves, whereas liberals spread these units out more. So in that sense, I actually think that the talk isn't necessarily cheap, that people are in these really abstract uh, situations doing something that fairly well reflects their actual behaviors um, and and are actually doing a pretty good job predicting how, how they might um, act when the rubber hits the road. But, but yeah, I, I think people do, it seems, um, take themselves as having some some capacity that is limited and then making choices not 
as much in terms of how much to distribute, whether they should be distributing more than they actually have or less, but rather given some amount that they're willing to give up for others, how are they going to allocate all of that? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And those studies actually are mentioned in, in your paper as well. So, well, you know, I'll give the link obviously to your paper, but you can follow up those studies as well. The que- another question that occurs to me has to do with the nature of sort of the tree-hugging mindset, okay? So my reading of some parts of the environmental movement and the environmental ethics literature is that it is almost like anti-human in its ethos, that humans are seen as the problem as opposed to the solution. And so that that can kind of lend itself to an extreme kind of anti-humanistic ethics, I think. And actually, you mentioned an example of this in your paper. I think there is something called the human extinction movement, right? Mm-hmm. Do, so do you think the finding in your paper is kind of linked to that and that at a, in a certain extreme point, a, kind, a certain environmental ethos lends itself to being very kind of anti-human? Or is it just the case that these people still retain their concern for local groups or people closer to them? So there's still a lot of human attachment, but they just, at this kind of abstract level, they invert between humans and nature. So that's a great question. Um, so on the one hand, in our study where we asked uh, people to uh, place the family member, the partner, and the close friend to one of these four circles of moral regard, both the human lovers and the tree huggers um, put all three of these entities really reliably into the inner circle of moral concern. So it's not that tree huggers don't care about any humans at all, but I think you're also right that there is some degree of kind of anti-human tendency within the group of tree huggers. So one of the other predictors that we found for um, why people end up in this group of tree huggers is misanthropy. Uh, So to the extent that people just have a negative view of humanity, uh, they're more likely to be tree huggers. Um, And I think, yeah, this does go back to this kind of perceived zero-sum trade-off where um, if people are thinking that they have to make some decision um, and they, they have to Uh, kind of have this hydraulic relationship between humans on the one hand and animals and nature on the other, that if they're going to value animals and nature uh, to an extreme degree, then that's going to potentially come at the cost of valuing humans. Um, But I I think this is another case where it's it's just really a bias. Um, I I, I think that people are, are not necessarily perceiving the situation in the, the kind of non-zero way that, non-zero-sum way that it could be perceived, um, where especially with issues like climate change and preserving habitats and things like that, this is at the same time um, an animal welfare problem, an ecosystem problem, and a, a human justice problem. Um, so climate change is really having the most impact on um, the most vulnerable people around the world. Um, and and so there, there are these huge um, inequities in who's impacted by climate change. And so I, I think that if human lovers and tree huggers are able to kind of band together and appreciate that in order to solve climate change, we need to care both about the people who are being impacted by it and the animals and ecosystems that are being impacted by it, we could potentially make a lot more progress. Um, but I think it's because of these kinds of perceived conflicts where caring about animals and nature kind of has to come at the expense of human welfare that we end up in these skirmishes. And and I think that your perception is, is correct, that there are a lot of people who are really prominent in the um, environmentalist movement who have very little regard for, for humans. So I, I wanted to ask a question about just the limitations of the study that you've done. You mentioned that you know a third of the sample kind of fit within the category of tree huggers as opposed to human lovers, if I'm remembering correctly. But you also do mention in in the paper that you know the the sample wasn't an attempt to be kind of uh, representative or, or or you weren't trying to obtain a reliable estimate of the proportion of these people. I mean, do you have any sense of how prevalent this view is? Uh, is this something we should expect to see on a larger scale? Are there other other kind of important limitations to the the findings from this one study? So, yeah, I I think that 
this study indicates that tree huggers definitely exist. So it's it's kind of an existence proof that at least within this um, very skewed population of online participants within the United States, uh, you do see a fairly substantial number of tree huggers. Um, this doesn't say a whole lot about how prevalent we can expect this tendency to be across the globe. And right now, I, I don't think I have a, a great sense uh, for how prevalent this will be worldwide. Um, although my former student and co-author on this paper, Steo Seropoulos, is um, starting some work um, using some publicly available um, really large data sets, um, the World Values Survey and, and things like that, um, and taking questions from those to see in nations across the world the extent to which um, certain people report valuing nature relatively more than outgroups. So we should have an answer for that somewhat soon. Yeah, no, that'll be interesting. Uh, the, the other comment I was going to make, and I'll see if I could formulate this accurately, was uh, to do with the kind of trade-offs question. So the thing that you pointed out that I think is a important and valuable insight is that if it's true that the, the way in which, let's say, tree huggers are allocating concern vis-a-vis -vis human lovers is because they perceive some sort of mental trade-off between these two categories. If we can highlight that that's a false trade-off or a false binary, that might encourage people to alter their their moral uh, practices or moral behaviors. And I think that could be qu quite a valuable thing. And, and as you pointed out as well, it's quite likely that the resources that we need to do certain positive things are available to us if we kind of reorient our perspective on the world. You know, there's famous studies of you know so-called moral saints like um, Larissa, is it McFarquhar is her name? I can't remember her saying yeah, name, surname. Yeah, how to spell it. I'm yeah. not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but yeah. The, her book, Strangers Drowning, you know, has this series of portraits of people who really go to quite extreme lengths in kind of altruistic behavior and you know, put the rest of the world to shame to the extent that they can do these things. Now, there's a, a paper by Susan Wolfe, the philosopher, who says that she wouldn't like to be a moral saint because it seems like they would live very unpleasant lives, and maybe that's true to some extent, maybe not as comfortable uh, or relaxed as other people might be, but it does show what's possible, and if we have more of these examples of what is possible to do as opposed to what we think we are limited by, uh, that can kind of overcome some of these binaries or tensions. I think, so I do think that's an important insight here. Right. I, I agree that that's potentially the biggest upshot of this research. And and I I think Susan Wolf's paper on moral saints is really telling. There, there are other papers um, similar to this. Eric Schwitzgeibel um, also has a paper on how we tend to strive to be kind of morally mediocre. Um, and I think there there is a pretty widespread perception that we want to be just a little bit better than average morally. Um, and people have quite a lot of skepticism, um, like Susan Wolf does, toward these moral saints who um, really try to live this kind of, um, this life that's devoid of really close, intimate connections um, in order to spread their their love equally across all people and things like that. Um, and, and yeah, potentially there's some truth to that, that people who disregard close others um, at the expense of, of favoring others, um, th there is something that, that's disturbing about that. But I do think that if we were to reorient ourselves and have different aims, different um, kind of moral exemplars that are much better than like just above average that we strive to be like, that we really could reorient our lives to have quite a lot more moral concern than we currently have and dedicate much more of our days to helping others in need. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. The, the kind of budget that we have to spend might actually be much larger than we think it is. And so to the extent that there is a zero sum element to how we allocate concern, we may not be using up or exhausting our full budget in the most efficient or effective way. And that's a that can kind of overcome some of the potential pessimism in the conclusion or that people might draw from the, the study or your paper. Right, I agree. So I, I think an analogy that I've recently been thinking about is 
with that of ego depletion. Uh, so there, there's a long line of research in psychology about whether willpower is a limited resource. Um, and proponents of this phenomenon of ego depletion have argued that, that there really is a truly limited capacity that we each have for willpower. And so if we exert our willpower um, on a really difficult math test or something like that, we'll have less in the tank for um, other kinds of things that follow up on that task. Um, and, and so it, people, it, there are a lot of studies that show that people tend to, to act in these kinds of ways that if they kind of deplete their willpower on one task, they'll then have show less willpower on another task. Um, but this, this kind of line of research has um, fallen into a, a lot of replication crisis issues. Um, and most notably, there have been some really, really interesting studies showing that the, the reason that people might show this phenomenon is not because of any actual physical limited resource that they have, like uh, too little glucose or something like that, but rather just a mindset that people have. Um, so this is from Carol Dweck's lab, who's done a lot of work on, on growth versus fixed mindsets. Um, and these studies have found that if we just have the mindset that willpower is non-zero sum, uh, that we don't show these kinds of effects, it's only when we believe that willpower is a limited resource that we show these effects. Um, and so I think there might be a similar kind of phenomenon of super ego depletion, where people tend to believe that their moral capacity is actually limited. But if we were to just shift people's mindsets to this more non-zero sum framework, um, those effects could potentially go away. And, and this is research that I'm hoping to start conducting. I, I haven't done any of this yet. But but it, it at least seems plausible to me. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. That sounds like uh, something I definitely like to know what the answer is to that. Um, and, you know, it could be that people like me who comment on things like moral trade-offs being inherent in decisions that we make, maybe that's a negative thing to do is because you're kind of reinforcing that fixed mindset as well. So, so that I'd be yeah very curious to see what the conclusions of that um, field of, or line of inquiry happen to be. So we've been talking for a long time. I think we might leave it there. Is there any question that I should have asked that you or that you wish I had asked before we wrap up? One thing that I was going to mention, but I, I don't think there's really a relevant place to, to stick this in necessarily. So this probably can get edited out. But um, the, the way that I came across your research was actually through an, a wonderful honors thesis of mine, um, Anastasia Grigoreva, um, who did her work on how we uh, ascribe moral worth to sex robots. And um, so kind of following up on some of what you've done, she found that these same patterns of mind attribution um, also predict moral standing in the, in the case of robot rape. Um, so people, if robots are described as having greater rational capacities or greater emotional capacities, um, that increases our tendency to think that the robots have the capacity for consent and are vulnerable to harm. And, and that in turn leads us to condemn um, any sort of sexual assault of, of sex robots. Um, so, so it does seem like these kinds of uh, mind attribution tendencies and their effects on moral concern are fairly domain general. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to, to let you know about that research um, just because it's, it's up your alley. But yeah, I, I don't think it really fit into anything in our conversation necessarily. No, no, it's interesting to know that. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of consistent with other, some of the studies on you know, how people ascribe minds or moral status or standing to, to robots. Okay, uh, I think, yeah, so I think we will leave it at that. And um, thanks for joining me uh, for this conversation, Josh. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was really fun.